The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing through a series in the book of James, this evening we pick up in James chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 13 verses. If uh, you want to follow along, there are Bibles in the pew. You can turn to page 1011 to follow along. This is week three of our series here at Westminster. You may be asking, why are you you speaking about a letter that was written over 2,000 years ago to a group of people that are all dead. Well, we believe God's word is from the mouth of God. That there is a God who exists and he's revealed himself in time and space through the person of Jesus Christ. And there were many who witnessed him and they recorded what he did and the difference he made in their lives. And this is a picture of the early community of people who were changed by this man who died and rose to life three days later. And as God's word, it speaks to us today. And as you will see, it speaks about a topic that, I don't know, maybe you struggle with a little bit, favoritism. So we're going to be talking this evening about ungodly favoritism. Let's pick up chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been, become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
So James is addressing a problem that this community was wrestling with, ungodly favoritism. Three questions are going to guide us through the text. First of all, what is it? What is ungodly favoritism? Second, what results from it? And third, how must we respond to it? First, what is it? James gives an example and a definition, but before we look at his example, I want a, a word about the historical context. James is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. We believe it was most likely written by the brother of Jesus. James is writing to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he calls the 12 tribes in the dispersion, a reference to the followers of Christ who had been scattered due to persecution, mostly around the northeastern rim of the Mediterranean Sea. And Jewish Christians were primarily in this group, but it wasn't only Jewish Christians. We know the early church consisted of both Jews and Gentiles who confessed Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah. So James refers to the, the recipients of the letter as my brothers, though they're not biological family, they are spiritual family because they hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, why is this significant? The ungodly favoritism that's being demonstrated is happening of all places in the church between believers during their assemblies of worship. These are brothers and sisters who have been persecuted for their faith nonetheless. So we're not talking about nominal followers of Christ or pagan unbelievers, but serious followers of Christ who identify with his church despite persecution. People who we might consider good Christian folk. And James provides one example of favoritism happening within that community. Now, of course, this is not the only form of ungodly favoritism that ever happened in the early church or was ever forbidden by God's law, but it illustrates clearly how such ungodly favoritism generally works. Look at it in verse 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in and you pay attention to the one and say, you sit here in the good place and to the poor man, no, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Note the two characteristics of ungodly favoritism. First, it's externally focused. Distinctions are based on appearance. Verse 2, it's a, it's a gold ring, a, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes contrasted to a poor man in shabby clothes. Nothing is said of character. Nothing is said of being made in God's image. It's focused on how put together each person appears to be, their cultural status. It's, it's external. Second, it's not just external. It's internally motivated by, by what is self-serving. Verse 3, James appeals to the conscience by asking the question, if you only pay special attention to those of wealth and status by, by drawing close and saying, yeah, you sit next to me. Whereas those who have nothing to offer, you say, well, you go sit over there. Isn't that not self-protective? Aren't you purposefully, intentionally positioning and, and repositioning people? This isn't accidental. And if you position yourself to others based solely on perceived benefits and or costs that they will bring to you, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Literally evil thinking judges? 
You're simply treating people by, well, how they add to your sense of self or what they can do to promote you feeling good about yourself or offering something to you that benefits you. So the example of ungodly favoritism shows that it's externally focused and internally motivated by evil thoughts, self-serving thoughts, not thoughts of truth and grace and mercy. It's, and it's purposeful, not accidental or ignorant. After the example, James provides a textbook definition. Verse 4, he says, such ungodly favoritism is, quote, making of distinctions among yourselves as judges with evil thoughts. He develops the definition in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And in verse 9, he continues that those who show partiality are convicted by the law as transgressors. It breaks God's law. So in short, showing favoritism is a violation of God's law, a sinful transgression against others in the community, and it's rooted in evil thoughts. James is using strong words here to describe this ungodly favoritism. This is stark language. There's, there's no hint of acceptance or, or tolerance. There's, there's no room for a spirit of, of dismissiveness. And in fact, in verse 11, he speaks of murder, adultery, and favoritism in the same breath. He just kind of wraps them all up together. Murder, adultery, favoritism. Do you think he might be trying to provoke a reaction? Of course. See, we would never condone murder or adultery, but how many of us feel that strongly when people play favorites socially? When they develop cliques that are intended to alienate others just so they can feel better about themselves or safe and secure and comfortable, or they overlook and ignore real, not imagined, real acts of discrimination. They just sort of ignore it because it's too inconvenient to actually deal with it. See, rather than stress the distinctions between murder, adultery, and favoritism, James stresses their similarities as if to say each is a serious violation of God's law and it really harms people. James is clearly attempting to get his readers to take seriously what is so easy for us to dismiss, the sin of favoritism and partiality. We think it's it's no big deal, no more troublesome or problematic than, than other respectable sins. But James is saying it's much more problematic than we care to admit. How does this apply? We need to reexamine our assumptions about the severity of the sin of favoritism. It's no small and insignificant issue. It's a violation of God's law, a transgression against other, and it's rooted in evil thoughts. Notice, not misguided thoughts, not ignorant thoughts, but evil thoughts. Is that how you think about the sin of favoritism? I've got to be honest with you. That's not how I think about it. In fact, I don't think about it much at all. I, I barely notice it. And as I've been thinking and praying about why that is, it's because, you know what? I live a pretty charmed privileged life. I'm usually in the favored group. And so it's easy for someone like me not to make a big deal of it or to barely notice it. But then we move to a new school district and we're the new family and some people treat you favorably just because you're new. But other people are like, well, you're not from around these parts. And my son has had some painful experiences at the high school. 
kids that he reached out to. He's sitting down at lunch who, who after three days of thinking that they were his friends, said, well, you know, we, you're just a temporary friend. I'm thankful I don't have a gun. <laughs> That's a confession of my own anger. Because when I'm on the other side of it, I realize, wow, this is a big deal. Things like that leave a mark for a long time. The text is calling us to re-examine and to be sympathetic to those who are marginalized, that are new, that are overlooked, that are forgotten. It's amazing how Jesus took time with those people and noticed those people, the widows, the outcast, the divorced, the adulteress, the new kid. So in summary, favoritism is not insignificant. It breaks God's law. It's rooted in evil thoughts. It it yields terrible results. Well, what results from ungodly favoritism? That's our second question. Well, it defies reason, and then it defiles everything. First, it defies reason. Look at verse 6b. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now, James is not saying that every rich person is an oppressor. His warning is not an anti-capitalist rant here. He understands the real problem is people, not money. Wealth, like, like technology, is neither good or bad. It's a tool that can be used righteously or unrighteously. Rich people can and have and regularly do use their wealth to liberate and not oppress. I'm thankful many in this church do that. But that's not always the case, and it certainly wasn't the case for the community of believers to whom James wrote. And see, as this church grew and threatened the status quo, the establishment, well, that establishment had means. They had wealth and power, and they were using that wealth and power to oppress this new movement within Jewish culture to oppress Christians and drag them into court. And yet, it was these oppressors who these Christians are for some reason tempted to show favoritism towards. Now, why would they be falling all over themselves to please someone who's out to oppress them while neglecting those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're appeasing oppressors and betraying brothers. Why are they doing this? Well, they have shifted their fear from a fear of God to a fear of man. They trust in people and circumstances and what these people of power can do to relieve their pressures and their trials rather than trusting in God. They've they're believers in Christ, but they're functionally atheists. And as a result, they continue to give preference to the wealthy, hoping that, that people of financial means would protect them or at least help them. And what happens here is the opposite is proving true. And, and the point he's making is that ungodly favoritism defies reason because it's foundationally a shift from fearing God to fearing man, from trusting God to trusting man. You move from trusting God's perspective and God's ways to man's perspective and man's ways. And and James is cross-examining them, essentially asking, how's that working out for you? Trusting what the culture says about you. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? It's not going as you had hoped. See, ungodly favoritism has a way of backfiring like that. Whenever we attempt to ingratiate ourselves to people of wealth and power simply because they're wealthy and powerful, See, we're placing on them a weight of expectation for protection and provision that really only God can bear that weight of expectation. And it defies reasons because it usually means we've turned from the only person 
God himself who is able to protect and provide and sustain. So ungodly favoritism defies reason. Imagine a child on a playground who is bullied. Where does he turn? Well, he turns to mom and dad. Why? Because mom and dad have proven faithful to provide and to protect. And yet here, if by comparison, instead of them turning to mom and dad, to, to the Lord, they're turning to the bully. Defies reason. But secondly, it defiles everyone involved. It defiles the victim, the perpetrator, and God. First, it defiles the Lord. Look at verse 7. The Christians are bending over backward to honor those who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. We are Christians. And these people that are oppressing you are dishonoring Jesus, all that he said, all that he stood for. Jesus is the one who, from infinite past has been wealthy. He was rich and he became poor so that the poor may become rich. Everything about Jesus from his birth shows that he cares for the poor. Even the way he was born. He was born to a poor family. What he taught, he's always honoring the poor. Given an example of the widow who gives a mite, saying she will never be forgotten. And then he died. How? Poor. As an outsider. And so these people who are bending over backwards to honor those who blaspheme the Lord are defiling the Lord and everything that he stands for. Secondly, they're defiling the poor. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. See, the word dishonor means to remove honor or to violate the honor that appropriately belongs to a person. And a foundation of biblical Christianity is that we're all made in the imago Dei, the image of God. Therefore, each of us, as a human being, is stamped with God's image. And that is what makes us innately valuable. What makes this valuable? It's a piece of green paper with ink on it. But what makes it valuable, more valuable than a collection of fibers and ink, is that it's stamped with the image of our founding father and backed with the full authority of the federal government. Therefore, it has real value, value that far surpasses its material makeup of green paper. In the same way, every human has real value. Each man, each woman, no matter how rich or poor, no matter how strong or weak, no matter how intelligent, what race, what gender, what ability or disability, what sin struggle, what past experience, each man and woman is stamped with the image of the founding father of all creation, the heavenly father. And their value is backed by the the full authority of the king of kings, an eternal government that will never pass away, that always backs up its tender and its promises. And therefore, every man and woman has has real worth. Now, incidentally, if if you're a non-Christian, if you're a seeker or a skeptic, A naturalistic worldview provides no reason to value people above what they can produce. If all we are is energy and matter, well, then the average human person amounts to 90-some percent water, some salts, and a bunch of carbon, elements you could easily buy at a drugstore for a couple dollars. We are just accidents that happen to be lucky accidents that crawled their way out of muck and mire, Natural selection, 
And if that's true, how can there be any dishonoring where there is no, no innate honor that existed? See, ignoring and dishonoring the poor, while this is not politically correct to say, it fits rather well with an atheistic or Darwinian worldview because that's the logical outcome of survival of the fittest mentality. If you talk, well, you can't talk to dogs and animals, but it's survival of the fittest. They don't really show honor to the poor and the weak. They eat them. But the uniqueness of Christianity is that we are made in God's image and you have real worth. And so that's why I think James is so aroused that dishonoring the poor undermines the unique beauty and power of biblical Christianity. See, ungodly favoritism defies others. But not only that, not only does it defile God and defile others, it defiles the perpetrator, defiles you. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. See, our sin of favoritism just doesn't just tarnish others it, and dishonor them. It, it tarnishes us and dishonors us. Our sin of favoritism defiles us. And left unaddressed, perpetrators... Hearts are hardened even more and we grow more blind and self-righteous and we lose our capacity for humility and compassion and tenderness. And more often than we realize, we don't don't see how deeply ungodly favoritism desensitizes perpetrators. And so James presses the point in verse 11 and uh, 10 and 11 by reminding us of the seriousness of it, comparing it to murder and adultery. Our denomination has roots in the South. And unfortunately, some of our founding fathers and the PCA, church leaders, godly men, but they were not perfect. And many of them sinned grievously. Some of these men stood against the rights of our black brothers and sisters. And any fair assessment of their words and their actions could bring about proper charges of racism. Now, thankfully, our denomination has confessed and and repented of ungodly favoritism. And we're in a, a process of healing but it's taken time to get there. See, racism was really hard to see back then. You know, almost everyone, almost everyone admits it now. There's a few who feel the need for personal justification through a pristine heritage rather than a savior for a church of sinners, but, but that's my point. The effect of ungodly favoritism is it creates self-righteous blindness even among the most godly and inability to see our hypocrisy an incapacity for compassion and and mercy and sympathy and empathy because we're too busy with self-justifications and we're all capable of it. Proverbs warns us of the temptations of showing ungodly favoritism toward those who are just externally beautiful, making distinctions chiefly based on body image. Except for a select few of us, we've all felt the pain of being overlooked and dismissed or even mocked because of our looks. Favoritism not only defiles others, but ungodly favoritism embarrasses us. Have you ever seen a man or a woman who should be embarrassed or was embarrassed by the way they treated another person? The comments they made about their physical appearance. Too many in our community show ungodly favoritism by defending and dismissing the sins of political leaders that happen to be in our party and then attacking 
those who commit identical sins in the other party. And we wonder why the watching world looks at the church and says we're hypocrites. See, it's embarrassing to the glory of Christ. And we can make favorites out of anything, gender, personality, musical preference. Extroverts can show a lot of preference to other extroverts and think introverts are just not as godly. Jocks can do it to computer, self-identified computer nerds and vice versa. Ungodly favoritism is not an insignificant sin. It breaks God's law. It's rooted in evil thoughts. It focuses merely on external appearances. It's motivated by self-serving thoughts. It defiles God, the victim, the perpetrator. So how must we respond? This is my last point. How must we respond to ungodly favoritism? We cannot minimize the prohibition. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the extent of the prohibition. Show no partiality, none, zilch, zero. Notice the conjoining reason. As you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why? Because everything Jesus represents strikes against this type of partiality. His work, his person, from his birth, as I mentioned, through his teaching, through his life and his death. So we must not minimize the prohibition, but... We must do more than just not dismiss the prohibition. We must embrace the command in verse 8, the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therein is the opposite of partiality, loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, how can we do that? What empowers us to love our neighbor as ourself? And James gives us three things. First of all, remember. Second of all, speak and act according to the law of liberty, and third, judge mercifully. Real quickly, remember. First, remember who we are. Verse 5, listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Notice James first addresses those who've fallen into the sin of ungodly favoritism by reminding, hey, listen, you are brothers. You are my brothers. He addresses them as family, reminding them we have equal status in Jesus Christ because we are adopted sons and daughters of the king. We are not natural brothers, but adopted, meaning we were brought into God's family by grace. And so he gently reminds them of their history with God and with each other before you were. You were outside God's family. You You were orphaned. You were separated. You were alienated. You were without hope, without a future, without inheritance. But now, by God's grace, you have been made family, brothers and sisters of God's royal family, the king of kings through the grace of adoption. And it's yours because of the compassionate love and the work of the person of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? When we show ungodly favoritism, we can know it's a result of spiritual amnesia. We have forgotten our past, our need. We've forgotten who we are, our desperate need for grace, that we were once outsiders and we've been given a new name and a new status and a glorious future, not because we deserved it, but simply because of God's compassionate, fatherly grace. So James tells us to remember that we are brothers. Remember who you are. Secondly, he says, remember how God plays favorites. Remember godly favoritism. Has not God chosen the poor 
to be rich. We know that that is spiritually true. Dr. Rogers has been leading us through the Sermon on the Mount, which begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, admit it, weep over it, and call out for mercy are given the kingdom of heaven. God favors the the spiritually poor. But James goes further and says, normatively speaking, that's even true economically, materially. And James clarifies that God chooses the poor in the world to be rich in faith. Now, that's not always the case, but it seems to be generally true that, that the poor, not the rich, were the first to get who Jesus was. The poor stand at an advantage because they cannot deny their desperate need. They understand better than most the folly of self-reliance. They're more suspicious of those who place faith in themselves and more willing to hold out for God to act. And James says it's the poor that typically have faith that is rich. And if we remember who we are, that we are adopted and in need of grace, and we remember who God shows special favor to, then we will begin to favor people differently. We will shift from favoring those who seem to be put together and self-reliant and accomplished and successful and, quote, rich in the world, and we'll shift to favoring those who are not all that put together, people who are needy and desperate and humble, hungry for grace and mercy, because those people will tend instinctively to show us the glory of God because they're desperate for it, and they will be rich in faith. So in order to keep the royal law, we must remember. Second, we must speak and act according to the law of liberty, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who've been judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty, that's an interesting phrase. What is this law of liberty? What does it mean to be judged under it? A law of liberty, that's, that sounds like an oxymoron to me. Like jumbo shrimp, open secret, Liquid gas. We don't normally associate the terms law and liberty. We tend to think that law limits and restricts our liberty. It keeps us from doing what we want. But James says the law of God, properly understood, is a law of liberty, giving true freedom. And rather, it is lawlessness that leads to enslavement and tyranny. What does this mean? God's law liberates us not to do what we want to do, but to do and be what we're created to do and be. See, God's laws are the proper boundaries that empower and provide for life and liberty. Just as a goldfish needs the boundaries of a fish tank and water in order for it to thrive, God's law provides the boundaries we need to live and thrive. And just as if a fish tries to live outside of the fish tank, when we try to live outside of God's boundaries, we bring death, not life. We are restricted, not liberated. That's why James refers to it as a law of liberty as he speaks about ungodly favoritism. Because when we speak and when we act with ungodly favoritism, we live outside of God's parameters for us. We forget who we are. We think we're something we're not, that we are not people as much in desperate need as that person. We forget our dependence and we attempt to live like fish who do not need the waters of grace and mercy. And instead of getting ahead, we fall apart. Instead of flourishing, we flounder. 
But when we keep this law of liberty by refusing to show ungodly favoritism, by repenting of it at every turn, as we do that, we flourish as individuals made in God's image. We thrive as a community, as we love others like we want to be loved. So remember who we are. Speak and act according to the law of liberty. And last, judge mercifully. See, the wonderful thing about God's law is it's not just a law of liberty. It's a law of mercy. James clarifies the basis of this law of mercy in verse 13. After saying we should speak and act according to the law of liberty, he says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does this mean? The law of liberty under which we are judged is full of mercy. And therefore, if we have been judged by God mercifully, abundantly mercifully, we must likewise judge others mercifully. So there's a simple application. At every turn, judge mercifully. At every door, judge mercifully. Show compassion, not just because mercy triumphs over judgment, but also because if you show no mercy, you will receive no mercy. Did you see that? James gives both a promise, mercy triumphs over judgment, as well as a warning. If you show none, you will receive none. And so choose mercy every time, every day, and twice on Sunday. See, we we think, well, you know, I kind of want to be 50-50 here. Mercy, judgment. I want to keep it in balance. And he's saying, listen, if there are two doors before you, one, a critical spirit of judgment, another, one of mercy and compassion, and you want the blessed life, you know, like they have on those game shows, pick a door, door one, door two, door three. You want to know what door that blessing is behind? The blessing is behind when you choose mercy. Always choose the door of merciful judgment. And how do we do that? Well, remember that that's what God did with us. God's judgments, if we are in Christ, is always merciful. That's what loving discipline does. Even when he lets us have consequences, they are, they are merciful consequences to save us from the sin that would otherwise destroy us. He is abounding in loving kindness. He is eager to forgive. He is eager to show mercy. And he will do that despite your numerous failures, despite your spiritual poverty, despite the mess you've made of yourself. He will always draw close to you. And he proved it in the work and person of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. So may we be a church that is marked as merciful people, not people of ungodly favoritism. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, which covers every issue that we struggle with. Lord, we confess that like The people of old, we, like them, struggle with ungodly favoritism, and we, like them, are very prone to just dismiss it and say it's no big deal, it's a respectable sin, but Lord, you remind us here that we need to seriously reconsider the severity and the damage that ungodly favoritism causes. The results, how it dishonors you and dishonors others and embarrasses us and the church, 
Oh God, help us to see when we are doing it and to repent. Help us to respond to it the way you call us to in this passage. Help us to remember who we are, to have the motivation to love because you have loved us so well by adopting us and bringing us into your family when we did not deserve it. That you favored us though we were poor. That you give us this law of liberty that as we live in it, it gives freedom. So God, give us a vision for fulfilling it. Let us always choose the door of judging mercifully and not critically. We pray this for your glory, for the growth and sanctification and joy of your church and for the good of this community and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.